Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another wonderful interview episode where we pull up a seat with the technicians and artists who make the spirits and cocktails that change the way we think about flavor. In this episode, we hang out with bartender Zach Hoffman and focus in on cocktail competitions and the craft bartender experience. What does it mean to become a real bartender? How do you deploy those skills to build a career and What's it like going head-to-head with other skilled mixologists to create a cocktail that rises above the rest? All this and more in this week's episode, but of course, let's give you an opportunity to make yourself a drink. This week's featured cocktail is the Water Lily Cocktail, as featured in our lightning round with Zach. To make it, you'll need three quarters of an ounce of triple sec or an equivalent orange liqueur, three quarters of an ounce of creme de violette, which is a floral, beautifully dusky purple liqueur, three quarters of an ounce of fresh lemon juice, and finally, for the spiritus botanical aspect of this cocktail, three quarters of an ounce of gin. Remember, this is an equal parts cocktail or a perfect cocktail, so you can always feel free to increase or decrease the amounts you use to suit your own personal thirst level. When you make this, you're gonna combine all ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, shake until well chilled and integrated, strain into a stemmed cocktail glass, and garnish with a nice orange twist. The Water Lily is a delightful little drink that dances somewhere between an aviation, a sidecar, and a last word. So please enjoy it responsibly, and please tag us at Modern Bar Cart on Facebook or Instagram if you have the opportunity to recreate this beautiful sipper at your own home bar. And now, back to this enlightening conversation with Zach Hoffman of Roy Boys, based here in beautiful Washington, D.C. Some of the things we discuss include how Zach steered his chef-driven career, kicked off at the Culinary Institute of America, to take a more liquid-focused route, going on to drive some of the best beverage programs in the mid-Atlantic. What it means to be a brand ambassador for a craft spirits venture, and how brand ambassadorship can enhance the career of an aspiring bartender. The four different tiers of cocktail competitions, as defined by Zach, ranging from the quote-unquote god tier to more local or brand-driven experiences. What it takes to develop a successful cocktail competition entry, drawing from Zach's experience using embitterment aromatic bitters in his recent creation, Don't Sleep on Kings. How to spend a lovely intoxicated evening with Karl Marx and much much more. I really learned a lot about the craft bartending scene in this chat, which helps me to focus in on what makes great cocktails both at home and out at the bar, right, in the kind of service industry experience. I also enjoyed working through Zach's rise through the food and beverage ranks, which paints a picture of creativity, perseverance, 
and fellowship. If you'd like to skip straight to the cocktail competition talk, jump to around the 18-minute mark of this episode. But if you're anything like me, I know you'll soak up the whole thing. We'll have some awesome video content to accompany this episode, so be sure to check that out on social media and on the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. And now, without further ado, it's my pleasure to present this excellent conversation with bartender Zach Hoffman of Roy Boys here in Washington, D.C. Zach, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. Can you introduce yourself for our listeners and uh, give us a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm Zach, um, Zach Hoffman. I've been bartending for, I guess, about six years now. Definitely started in the kitchen. Originally went to the Coloring Institute of America right out of high school. Didn't realize until I took my wines class uh, most of the way through uh, my associate's degree that uh, you can make money basically talking about wine, talking about spirits, uh, making cocktails, doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I was 19 at the time, so I had very little exposure to just alcohol in general outside of the Four Locos and uh, Natty Lights and, and 19, stuff. 19 year old stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although there is a great statistic at CIA that we spend about three times as much as the average college student uh, on alcohol. And there's not a consensus on whether that's because we drink way more than everybody else or if that's because we only buy really good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> there's many a times we're at the wine store down the street and people were buying, you know, Grand Cru, Beaujolais, and just taking the burgundy section apart, you know, crate by crate. And, you know, they, they were like, how old are you? And we're like, don't worry about it. We're yeah. going to buy the $400 bottles. You don't even need to see an ID at this yeah. point. Yeah. Let us play. Let us play. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's cool. So CIA, what was that like? CIA was great. Um, I went with the initial, you know, understanding that I was going to cook. I wanted to be a chef. I literally have silverware tattooed on my forearms. You know, that was definitely what I wanted to do. And then I, I think it was more that I didn't know what else you could do in the food and beverage industry. And, and really that there was, a, you know, when they say food and beverage, you know, food is definitely the one we all think of, but beverage is very much a part of that. And being exposed to that in college uh, really shaped the way that I thought about my own career and what I wanted to do. So when I went back for my bachelor's degree, uh, I got into the advanced wines, beverage and hospitality management uh, concentration, which was great. Went out to Napa basically for most of a year. That sounds phenomenal. You know, it's, it, you got to do it. You know, I went to school right outside New York City. I got to live in Napa for a year. I, you know, kind of did that whole life and it was great. I would love to go, <laughs> to live in Napa again, but uh, it is so expensive to live there that so a little bit prohibitive, but hopefully I'll get back one day. For sure. For sure. So you got into wine. Mm -hmm. And from there, how'd you make the jump to being a bartender? So out of school, I got my first job at the Greenbrier, actually down in West Virginia. Um, and if anybody that's ever worked in a resort or goes to resorts or is a fan of resorts in any way, they'll know the Greenbrier. It's actually older than the country that it's in. Pretty sure Thomas Jefferson enjoyed a couple summers out there out in West Virginia. Right. But yeah, no, I got, I got my job there. I was going to be, I was doing the manager and training program, met up with a great, uh, wine director at the hotel, Brian McClure, great guy, good friend of mine. Me and him essentially like formed a really quick bromance. Like we were very fast friends we really wanted to work with each other but we were kind of restricted based on the program I was in and you know what we were trying to accomplish with that and, and whatever but at the kind of culmination of my training program our sommelier had left to go start a, a new restaurant with one of the chefs that they were they were married and they left the resort together 
kind of left a hole in the in the operation. When the Somme left, I'd already had a really strong interest in, in doing wine stuff, and I would already help doing wine. I had a wine background. It was, it was really easy for me to do that. None of the other managers could really take on the role. Like if our Somme didn't show up or they were sick or whatever, I could just really quickly jump in that role and, and execute it. No problem. And we had a huge list. It was just kind of like the best wine store I've ever been to. There's 1,200 bottles, or 1,200 labels, rather, right. or vintages from 42 to 2013, 2014. Um, so it was, it was really daunting, but was able to kind of jump into that role as like an apprentice psalm for a little while. So then presumably you came to D.C.? Yeah, so I came back to D.C. I kind of hooked up with Brian Voltaggio. I went over uh-huh. to the range while that was still up in Friendship Heights. Um, I met a lot of my current industry friends there now, which was like a really good class of people. I was living in Ashburn back at home with my parents. I was like, I'm going to move to D.C. at some point. I don't know where I'm going to live. Let me just kind of lay low for a minute and figure it out. Brian was opening a family meal in Ashburn, and then there was stuff in Frederick. Went out to the Ashburn family meal basically because they kind of courted me to do that. I was going to be a manager and uh, basically just ended up serving at the start, but I kind of helped open the restaurant and we had a great bar manager, Eric, and I kept being really interested in what the bar was doing. And Dave Nakamura was the corporate beverage person for, for Brian at the point, and he's still a good friend of mine. And he, you know, knew that I was interested in it. And he asked me a couple times at range, he's like, why are you not bartending? Why are you not doing bar stuff? Like you're, you have the knowledge, you have the skill set, you have the experience, like you have the background. Like, why are you not pursuing that? And I hadn't really thought about it before. And when our our bar manager left Family Meal, I basically just jumped in bartending and then became the bar manager a couple months later. And, you know, just kind of started my career. I was 22 at the time. Like, I was not old enough to be running a bar with you know people reporting to me but I, I was doing it and that really kind of started my career I was there for about a year and a half with uh, with Brian um, out in one Loudon which is right super cool so what I guess led you to uh, your current situation over at Roy boys and what so like tell us a little bit about that place what it specializes in and kind of what you're doing behind the bar there yeah, I mean, the the story of how I got to Roy Boys, I hope, ends with me staying at Roy Boys for a good amount of time. I've been very transient recently, but uh, Frank Mills came to me and said, hey, we're doing this thing over in Shaw. He actually didn't ask me. He just mentioned that he was doing it. And I right. said, cool, well, I'm doing that with you. And he was like, you don't even know what kind of restaurant it is. It's like, I don't care. Like, you're part of it. I want to do something new. I want to open something. I want to do with you and we're just gonna just gonna enjoy it so i think he'll say looking back now that was a good decision to bring me on early it's been a really exciting bar it's really different than everything else i've ever done in my life it's very casual it's very fast-paced it's very loose but yeah we're we're out there slinging chicken and making craft cocktails and right southern kind of a southern feel to it right a little bit you know fried chicken and oysters Mm -hmm. uh chicken sandwiches you know that oyster shooters a lot of shots and beers but you know, we're also making like some really, you know, interesting, complex cocktails at the same time uh, for the masses, which is nice. And I say the masses as like it's a giant bar. It's a like 40 seat hole in the wall, basically, with we double the outside. We double the seating when we open the outside patio. So it's it's very tiny, but it's uh, it's a great spot. And it's a lot of fun. Right. So what I want to talk about 
later on in this interview is cocktail competitions. And this is something that I have not personally been involved with. Uh, I'm not a bartender. I'm like the weird bartender adjacent industry adjacent liquor distributor adjacent like mm-hmm. I'm I am adjacent to everybody but I am not really necessarily inside like in deep in those worlds so I don't really know much about bartender competitions and yet we've had our cocktail bitters featured in a number of them so what I want to do is learn a little bit more about that but I figured what we would do is is round out kind of like you and what you do by talking a little bit about what we're drinking now and um why this beautiful juice is in my glass. Yeah, well, so we're, you know, when I rolled up today, I had a bottle of uh, the Gin Lane uh, London Dry. Uh, Gin Lane 7251 is a gin brand that I happen to be a brand ambassador for. They are super indie, super small, really new. Um, Jeff Curley up out of New York is uh, doing some great stuff. Uh, it's a it's a London-produced uh, gin. It's made by Charles Maxwell, and if anyone has ever been involved in distillation of anything other than whiskey, uh, they know his name very well. He's definitely the master distiller's master distiller, like a man's man of that of that world. We are just really trying to expand the footprint. We're doing like a like a weird Negroni right now, I guess. It's, uh, <laughs> I was surprised how close to a Negroni it actually tastes. Well, with the gin and the Campari, I mean, you, you can really only stray so far. Yeah. Um, but the, the ginger, cherry, herring, Portuguese spirit is uh, really interesting. And then we added the embitterment uh, aromatic bitters, I think in like four or five dashes, and then the embitterment chocolate bitters as well mm-hmm. on your suggestion with that. I've never used ginger before, but I'm probably going to find some and add it to the shelf. Yeah, it's probably very affordable because it's if, if it's imported into the United States, and I'm sure it is somewhere, it, it's definitely not popular compared to cherry hearing, which in and of itself only has a couple of use cases, right? Blood and sand being probably the most popular. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it'd be much sweeter than whatever, you know, I didn't taste this by itself, but I think that the cherry hearing would have been way more sweeter and definitely way more artificially colored. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, so Gin Lane, uh, I guess from my perspective, it seems like being a brand ambassador in addition to being a bartender is something that... Uh, does a couple things. One, it kind of continues to entrench you in a, in a community, mm-hmm. right? In this case, you're becoming part of your own supply chain, if that makes sense. Well, we have to be careful because that is technically illegal. So while I work for the brand, I don't work for the people that sell the spirits. I don't sell anything to anybody. I see. But you're correct in, in that like we're integrating ourselves more into the into the entire system. We're not just the, you know, the output. We're kind of crawling upstream a little bit, sure. Uh, which is great. Brand ambassadorship is a its a really interesting way to kind of integrate yourself into a different set of communities. So there's definitely the people that do work for, you know, that do, set, do sell things. You know, the distributors, they have connections and friendships and relationships that far extend uh, past, you know, who they sell to, uh, which is useful for us when we want to do fun stuff like have... Luxardo send us to Italy or go on a trip to Jalisco or Guadalajara or, you know, Oaxaca or, you know, Arizona and see like see some spirits be made, learn about them really, really in depth, you know, on a kind of a small focused uh, trip or a small focused tasting or like get, you know, 
we did a the craft bartender guild in DC did a Martell tasting a couple months ago. I think mm-hmm. at the April meeting, and we tasted some stuff that I didn't even know they made, and that was kind of thanks to the people that work for Martell in DC. Yep, and also the distributor of Martell in DC. So those relationships kind of codify in everybody learning about things. Um, and then selfishly, it's like kind of the best side hustle because if I'm going to be spending all my time in bars anyway, I might as well be making some money at the same time. Be like, hey, what gin are you using? You want to bring this in? Great. You want to taste it? Because it's literally in my bag right now. It's always going to be in my bag. Right. It'd be in my bag whether or not I was <laughs> pimping it or not. Yeah. So Gin Lane, they make a number of different marks, right? And mm-hmm. I, I think right now, from what I've heard... England is experiencing a rediscovery of, of craft distilleries, yeah. especially in London. Yeah. I think they, Sip Smith's really kind of kicked it off from what, I, what I've heard. I mean, America's always been a craft-based distillation empire. Um, that's really always been in the history. It's always been like, I'm making whiskey because I like whiskey and I'm going to drink some whiskey and I'm not going to go pay my buddy 40 miles away to drink his whiskey. I'm just going to make it myself. I got yeah. a farm. I got a corn, whatever. Sure. That's kind of the whole, the whole mindset. London and England and really Europe in general kind of relegated like, all right, Beefeater makes gin and these guys make scotch and these guys, and that's it. Like, that's the way we do it. There's always been small brands. There's always been small producers. But at the end of the day, you know, every bar has this, every bar has that. I think Guinness is a great example in Ireland. Like, right. everybody has it. Is it the favorite? That's debatable, but nobody's not going to have it, right? right? It's more of a monoculture society when yeah. it comes to uh, when it comes to what you consume, for sure. And I think, I mean, think about like history, right? Think about mm-hmm. like the age of exploration and the subsequent sugar and spice mm-hmm. and tea and coffee trade that transpired after that. All of those things were heavily commodified, controlled by very few people. Yeah. And so it makes sense that that's the way that Europe is because that's where Europe comes from. Well, in Europe, it's it's just, it's more of a cultural, you know, they have a lot longer of a history. They have, uh, you know, they're, they've they been doing this a lot longer than we have over here. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of, you know, the, American, the Western mindset as far as like between Europe and, and the United States are different on a lot of fronts, and that really just lends itself to a lot of different outcomes of, of how we deal with things. But with the more globalization and more kind of homogenization of culture and just like sharing culturally throughout the world, uh, people are realizing that if you have a good idea and you can make a good product, like somebody will buy it. Right. And it has to be good, it has to be marketable, but if you can do that, somebody will buy it. And the bar is now full, you know, every bar now and that I go to at least is full of things that half the time I've only had once or twice or I've never had before. Or I'm trying new things or whatever it is. And like, that's really exciting for me because somebody's making the perfect gin for me or somebody's make the perfect bourbon for me or somebody's make the perfect whatever for me that I don't even know yet. And, but it's out there and people encouraging that it's just exploding the diversity of, you know, of products and, just really the overall quality of everything is going up, which is great. Right, for sure. So uh, for folks who are listening who might be interested in checking out Gin Lane, where is it available in the U.S.? So we're very East Coast right now. Uh, we, I'm pretty sure we just launched Atlanta. We're out here in D.C. and Baltimore, Annapolis, uh, Delaware, uh, Connecticut, and New York for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're anywhere in D.C. and you don't see it, 
either give me a call or <laughs> tell your bartender to uh, give me a call and we'll make sure we get it out there for him. You're going to roll in with that backpack. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've talked about your journey to becoming a bartender. We've talked about your brand ambassadorship, your culinary background. What I want to dig into now is cocktail competitions. And I feel like these have been around for a while now, mm-hmm. right? It, it pretty much as long as the cocktail renaissance has been around and people have been rediscovering cocktails and trying to push the boundaries of what cocktails are in mm-hmm. the social consciousness, I feel like cocktail competitions are only a year or two behind whatever trend is, is occurring. Um, so to you, I guess as somebody who knows a lot more about this than I do, in general, if you had to give a general definition of a cocktail competition, what would that be? Well, there's definitely a lot of different kinds of cocktail competitions, which is important as far as knowing your bartending style, knowing what kind of bartender you are, what kind of bartender you excel at being. Um, there's definitely always room for growth, and you can always explore different avenues. But if you're going to go into a competition circuit, you need to know what you excel at and what you are capable of doing at the best uh, level you can do it. You know, there's definitely like four tiers of kind of cocktail competitions. The way that I look at them. No, this is this is fantastic. I love <laughs> like, I love like tier structures. Yeah, this is super helpful. Um, and then there's kind of like an auxiliary branch that's like flair, which is definitely a thing. It's definitely its own culture. It's not something that I personally enjoy or am coordinated enough to do. I can't juggle. I can't do some of those things, but I am very impressed by the people that do it very well. Kind of like um, Tom Cruise in, in cocktail. Absolutely. Like that, that is a thing. Vegas loves that. A lot oh, of people love do. that. They, they love really it. In, they love it that. in Hong Kong. They, yeah. they love it in, in, in flashy places. And, you know, I, I do always stand anybody that does a little low key flair, you know, I, Frank Mills is great at that. He'll, he'll flip a pint glass uh, in his hand real quick and like clink it with his ring. I was like, that's that's flair right there, but it's very subtle. And if you don't catch it, uh, it's you know you'd be like, how did the glass flip in his hand? Like I didn't even see him do that. Mm-hmm. But I've seen, I've been up close, personal enough with them to to watch him do it. It's it's impressive and stuff like that is cool. Yeah, I, li- I like the low key flair too. Low key flair is fun. Less um, less risk of breakage. Yeah, I'll, I'll pick the bottle up by the neck, throw it up, have it kind of hover for a second, and grab it by the body, like stuff like that. You you can really screw something up you can drop bottles i mean we're we're not playing with dummy bottles anymore we're playing with i'm on the bar and i've got a tight well and i'm trying to grab the quattro bottle and i'm like this little tiny neck's not going to do it i need the whole thing and right i've, I've thrown bottles before it's, it's definitely <laughs> it happens yep yeah so let's assume that that our listeners know what flair bartending is if you if you don't just go on youtube you'll figure it out pretty fast it's it's, it's entertaining for for sure absolutely but if that's the side branch what is the main body and what are these four tiers of cocktail competitions that you were mentioning yeah so i think the top tier the god tier level there's only three and i think any bartender you know this is my also disclaimer this is my personal list this is how i view competitions and this is how i go about deciding what to enter. Uh, this year, I'm doing every competition that I see posted. That's that's my current goal. Cool. Um, which is daunting and... It's aggressive, yeah. It's aggressive and it's, you know, <laughs> there's way more than I thought than um, I originally when I started. So the God tier level is Diageo World Class, Bacardi Legacy, Bombay's uh, MIB, Most Imaginative Bartender. Those right. are the top tier... If you win any of those, I mean, you have basically a handful of job offers coming at you from those companies. You know, Diageo, very open with like, if you win, there's a very good chance you're going to be the Grey Goose ambassador for North America or 
my buddy French, uh, French Scotty, you know, just moved to Brooklyn out of D.C., but really brought D.C. up in the eyes of a lot of people. Won nationals for Bacardi Legacy and went on to the entire competition in Mexico City. I have to imagine the Bacardi people were very happy with him. He's also very good looking and just has that look. And he's a good bartender and like he just has everything that you want in somebody that would sell anything for you. Sure. He started doing some stuff with Saint Germain and I was like, of course you would because who doesn't like the Saint Germain guy to come around and bring you swag and bottles and you know whatever and do events and it's they have the money. Bottle. It's they have money to do events and stuff and that's great. That's that's awesome. And now he's doing stuff with Bicardi up in New York and I was like not surprised. Yeah, that's and exactly the person. They've they've proven themselves as a bartender and a competitor, and they're clearly someone that enjoys your brand. They're loyal to the brand, and they can do things for you. Sure, so. and and I don't think it's it's a coincidence that the this god tier that you're talking about is dominated by some of the world's largest spirits companies, yeah. sort of the yeah. conglomerates. Um, yeah, world class is definitely a multi multi tiered competition. I mean, there's it's not just regionals, nationals international it's it's i mean it there's so many layers to each of those individual components and then competitions and then kind of the people that win world class are without a doubt some of the most talented people in the industry every year um it's it's political too you know it's there's you know the converse the dominant conversation in the fall is like who did or didn't get picked for world class or who were the judges for world class this year or what what products did you use for world class are they favoring a product for world class this year like those that's how entrenched in the culture it is you know to be involved i think mib gets looked down upon in those from legacy and world class but you know some of the stuff that comes out of those competitions is actually like industry changing i mean there's People that are forced to think about things that have never been done before, that are literally living up to most imaginative bartender. I mean, they are very. There are very few rules in that competition, which is daunting. I, I feel like I prefer more rules because okay. it, it kind of narrows my focus. And when it's like you have to use the spirit, do whatever you want, I'm like, oh, Jesus! Like, I, I I have the entirety of all humankind of bartending knowledge right. at my disposal. What do I pick specifically to use? Yeah, creative constraints are useful for sure. Like, when you want to focus onto one singular thing, like a cocktail, when you need to focus how you want it to drink, how you want it to taste, how you want it to feel, you know, what kind of emotion to evoke. Creative restrictions are are helpful in that sense. So that's why I like world class. Uh, I'll be entering world class this year again. Uh, this will be my fourth time entering uh, world class so hopefully uh, we'll see how that goes but I think after those tiers you have kind of the brand the big brand sponsored um, for instance the Gentleman Jack uh, Whiskey Sour Classic or competition whatever it's called I just entered that last night actually some of these have international components they have very big prizes they have lots of exposure potentially Um, these are ones that really are anyone's game they're really not looking for anything specific in my mind they they want the best cocktails and they want really the best exposure for the product it's very product facing it's not so much about you it's about how you use the product right we're trying to sell product like that's kind of the whole goal and they probably want some instagram content right instagram is is definitely changing the game as far as like how we can promote these drinks 
And so that makes sense to me, right? So like the like the the pinnacle is really focused on the individual genius, mm-hmm. and then the next tier down is kind of focused on the product. And I I imagine like below that is kind of focused on like a combination of product and the execution of what yeah. you do, kind of like the I would, idea. I would put I would put mixtape in that that third tier, and this isn't a judgment of the competitions, but. Mixtape, which I've entered and am going to the semifinals in DC on the 13th, May 13th. Oh, my birthday, dude. That's yeah, freaking lucky. Absolutely, man. Nice. So we're using the embitterment bitters in my cocktail, Don't Sleep on Kings. But this is a competition where you need a combination of a good drink, a good story. It's inspired by a song. Uh, which mm, that's is, the that's the the kind of the rules of the of the mixtape competition, yeah. right? And Copper and Kings is a great brand out of Louisville. They are very involved in music and promoting music, and a lot of their events are around music. And that's that's awesome for being less about the booze and more about the party. And that's definitely a way to to move product and just get people excited about it. But this is a individual genius project, but also through very constrained kind of. They, there needs to be a, a, a process. You can't just be great. You can be great. It doesn't mean you're going to go far in this competition. Right. Um, and there's there's several others in this tier where it's like there's, you know, there's definitely not the biggest prize in the world, but winning it, I think, means a little bit more on some of these competitions where you went with a very specific idea that you executed from start to finish with very constrained kind of ideas and you executed it the way you wanted to, and you did it. Right. And that, to me, is one of the most rewarding ways of competing. You know, when you really have to think out multiple levels of, you know, what song am I going to pick? What's the drink like? How do I explain the drink in the song? How do I explain the ingredients? How do I, you know, how does the drink taste? Like, when I'm drinking it, like, can I understand the lyrics better? Like, you know, whatever it is, you know, it takes a lot more concentration on kind of the entire idea not just the drink or not just the story or whatever it might be right so walk us through don't sleep on kings and like talk talk to us about your process for creating this drink did it did it come to you pretty easily or was this something that you kind of had to iterate on a little bit i think the whole idea of the drink was very easy to come up with. It was the final tweaking that I needed some kind of, I kind of crowdsourced to my bar and my my bar family to be like, hey, what do you think about this? Right, let me change something really quick. Do you like it better now or do you like it better before? And just kind of tweaking, you know, fine tuning. I originally had it as an up cocktail. It's now in a Collins glass with grapefruit soda. So, you know, some major changes kind of technically have changed, Mm -hmm. but I I knew kind of what I wanted the drink to be like. My recipe for this drink, it's an ounce and a half of the pear brandy from Copper and Kings. I happen to be able to have access to the single barrel that LeDroit Prestige uh, basically purchased, I imagine, from them. They picked a barrel, had it bottled. Um, it's really fucking good. It's it's so pear-y. It it the pear to me when I tasted it, it like all I could taste was pear. I put lemon juice with it. I put lime juice with it. Pear, pear, pear. Mm-hmm. Like nothing was taking the pear away. And I was like, okay, well we're going with pear. Like pear is the flavor, and we're gonna make we're gonna accentuate the pear, and we're gonna bring the pear up because I'm not trying to hide the product. Like I'm using an ounce and a half of 105 proof pear brandy. Like we're gonna taste the the pear all day yeah no questions asked sometimes you taste the pear some sometimes the pear tastes you that's exactly so i (laughs) (laughs) it's actually kind of a two sipper cocktail like you kind of need one to kind of prime your palate you're not going to enjoy that first sip 
once your palate's primed, that second sip, you're like, okay, I totally see what's going on here. Right. And I feel like the grapefruit soda, like thinking through what you're talking about, I feel like the grapefruit soda is almost like the effervescence of that mm-hmm. kind of helps to prime the palate a yeah. little bit, right? Mm-hmm. That um, fizziness, the 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 sugar that just kind of like braces your palate. Mm-hmm. The whole idea about the cocktail was underutilized ingredients. The song that I picked is by Chromio, which is a great band. They're coming to DC at Lincoln Theater May 19th. I already have VIP tickets. I'm super excited. I've loved these guys for 10 years. You know, the song Don't Sleep is basically like, you know, the kids would say like, don't sleep on me, you know, don't sleep on that. Like, that's good. Don't sleep on it, you know, whatever. And the whole idea is that in my mind, I think Copper and Kings makes a lot of products that are very good. I think actually everything they make is very good. I think there are some that are more commercially viable and some that are kind of look looked at as like, why would I bring on an apple brandy? Why would I bring on a pear brandy? Like that's mm-hmm. they did they do an absinthe that's pretty they do popular. An absinthe, they do gin, they I mean yep. they do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. They do unaged brandies, they do, you know, all kinds of aggressive flavor stuff. And to me, it's like this is a great spirit and it's really phenomenal on its own. It's hot, it's aggressive, it's bold. And I think boldness can scare people away sometimes if they're not ready for it or they're not exposed to it. So how can we temper the boldness into a way that while it's still present, uh, it's easier to kind of be like, hey, I love this. This is something I could definitely pound on a cocktail, but also bring in, you know, all the supporting flavors that are not always looked at in the same way. You know, there's a whole cast and crew of, of things on a bar that are like, that's for that one drink and we don't. You were talking about cherry herring earlier. That's a very underutilized product. It, right. Blood and sands and like somebody wants their old fashioned sweeter. Like that's it. Yep. There's nothing else for it. You don't touch it for anything else. We don't think about it. And I think Jaeger's actually kind of doing that right now. They're like trying to reform their image. You're like, that's for frat boys and shots and that's it. And I'm out here making the rep. She's like, Hey, uh, Ashley Hearn, shout out. Uh, she's like, hey, make me something with agave and lemon and Jaeger. And I was like, okay, whatever. And I taste it. I'm like, that's really good. Like, mm-hmm. I would drink that. That's a cocktail. This is an Amaro. Like, why are we not thinking about that? She's like, I know that. You know that. How do we get everyone else to know that? Mm. So that's kind of my thesis on Copper and Kings with this drink. You know, we're using maraschino liqueur. That doesn't come out of anything except for a last word or aviation, aviation, or like these very quintessential classic cocktails, which are it's necessary to make those. You can't substitute that. It's very classic. But outside of those things, it doesn't really get a lot of love. And I think it's I think it's one of my favorite spirits to use. I use it in all kinds of stuff. or I try to. Um, And people are like, oh, maraschino. I don't know about that. But with the pear brandy, that light cherry the nuttiness it's got that 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 almondy velvety kind of texture and then with the the aromatic bitters the way that i think about that flavor profile is i think about it almost like apple pie spice Mm -hmm. kind of like if you've ever had like a really delicious spiced apple pie and pear is kind of Mm -hmm. in that in that conversation right and so I, i think it's a really smart move to pair it with that and i think the grapefruit soda is such a, a cool addition to the cocktail, especially going from uh, served up to in a Collins yeah. glass. And man, it's just you're you're using so much fruit in there. Absolutely. You know, but I have a feeling that the cocktail itself, it's it. I feel like what the 
the fruit does for me as I think about this cocktail is it kind of contains that 105 proof. Yeah. Right. Because mm-hmm. you, it's almost like you want to. The cage wood is that doing st- a lot of a lot of favors for that that brandy. I mean, they're yeah. aging that in some amazing barrels. Uh, they're in Louisville, so I know they know a guy that's got the hookup on the barrels. Like <laughs> one would hope, right? Yeah. I mean, and they're not making whiskey, so they they're friends with everybody down there. It doesn't matter. Brown Farmer will hang out with them. Yeah. Heaven Hill will hang out with them. They don't care. They're making whiskey, so absolutely. Um, but exactly what you're saying, I kept throwing more and more fruit and more and more flavors. You know, there's lime juice in this cocktail. There's simple syrup in this cocktail. But everything I would throw at it, it just doesn't stop being a pear bomb. And I love that. I was like, yeah, you can you can throw whatever you want at me, but I'm still me. I'm still true to true, true to self. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I when I said that, uh, I forced everyone at, at Roy Boys to listen to Chromio enough times where they're like. I hate Chromio at this point, but you're completely on point with the song. Like, that's 100% what the song's about. Like, I don't want to listen to it again, but that's what the song's about. Right. So. Proof, of, proof of concept. Yeah. You got it. Cool. So I think this would be a great point to take a virtual trip down to Roy Boys and, and actually uh, have you make this for us. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, guys. We're here at Roy Boys. This is my cocktail, Don't Sleep on Kings, inspired by the song by Chromio, Don't Sleep, featuring French Montana and Stefan Don. It's a great song. You should check it out on their new album, Head Over Heels. We're going to start building this cocktail with some lime juice, just a quarter ounce. Grapefruit juice, three quarter of an ounce. Half ounce of simple, just one to one. Quarter ounce of the Luxardo maraschino liqueur. do an ounce and a half of the Copper and Kings Pear Brandy, the single barrel from LaDroit Prestige. They picked a great barrel. This is phenomenal. 105 proof spirit right here. We're using a lot of cocktail ingredients that don't get uh, the attention they deserve. Really kind of pays back to the song that we're picking with Don't Sleep, you know. Don't sleep on Copper and Kings. Don't sleep on Embitterment. Don't sleep on Bitter Truth. Don't sleep on Grapefruit Juice. All the above. We're going to do three dashes of the aromatic bitters of uh, from Embitterment. I'm going to do two dashes of the grapefruit bitters from Bitter Truth. I'm going to shake that lightly over ice, just get everything combined. I'm going to top that with the cube grapefruit soda. Soda definitely underutilized in every bar. Do about an ounce and a half of the grapefruit soda. Grapefruit twists and a cherry. Don't sleep on kings. All right, we're back at the proverbial uh, podcasting studio here in my apartment in DC. So, 
thank you, first of all, for showing us that amazing cocktail. And um, I want to get back because we, we left one quick little aspect unfinished about our discussion of cocktail competition. So we got through those first like top mm-hmm. three tiers that you spoke about, yeah. the, the God tier with all these big brands, mm-hmm. Diageo. Then we got through the kind of ingredient focused ones and then the more tightly curated mm-hmm. uh, procedural kind of like, here's the concept you need to, you need to take this very specific set of rules and make them your own, kind of like the mixtape competition. Yeah. What's the final tier of cocktail competitions in your opinion? The final tier I think is, is really that little section of maybe there's just one round, maybe it's something the craft bartender skill does, which can be some of the most heated competitions as well. Uh, sure. Sometimes whoever rolls up against you or you don't know who's entering and then you roll up and it's your best friend and like really kind of yeah. just kind of jive with really well. So that, that can really promote uh, that kind of stuff. And these like single ingredients that like, hey, Coco Lopez is doing a one-off competition in New York. Grand prize of 500 bucks. And you're like, well, I love that product and I already have a drink that's good with it. So like I'm going to definitely go up to New York for a weekend and compete in something for a couple hundred bucks and spend that all that night on sure <laughs> on drinks and employees only or whatever it is. And, right. you know, it's ones that just like test you kind of sporadically. They usually have short deadlines. You kind of find out of, you always find out about them way too late and you're like, oh, I don't have any time to test. You just have to like throw something at the wall, see what sticks. Right. You get picked. You go up to New York for, for a weekend or whatever it is and just or a couple days or, or you go out to Chicago and, and just like do something really quick and, and easy and then you just roll up and you're done and that's it. And you win and here's a little check, no big checks, just the <laughs> or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just an acknowledgement of, of your skill and your, your craft. Um, I feel like the the like the scheduled competitions too. I feel like this is a good like local thing to do. Like the yeah. the battle of the bartenders that we did uh, with Catoctin Creek last fall mm-hmm. was a great example of something like that. And then, of course, we have uh, another cocktail competition that I want to mention because I think it's very important to the industry Mm -hmm. and it's bringing uh, a lot of awareness to a social issue in in cocktails and and the industry uh, around women, right? And that's Mm -hmm. the speed rack competition. Speed rack, I I think I would even put above whatever God tier I I said before. Speed rack is always impressing me with what they are able to do for the community and the culture of bartending. Um, right. There was a time when I didn't know what speed rack was and I was like, I'm going to enter speed rack. <laughs> and I had no idea that it was only for women. I was like, wow, what a great turnout there. All these women are competing. Like that's so great. I just thought they only picked women for DC. And I went two years ago and I was like, that's amazing. Good for them. Like they're all great. I love all of them. I know half of them really well. The other half I know tangentially or through the guild or, or whatever it is. But you didn't know that it I was. I had no like... idea. <laughs> 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 and I remember when my friend Megan Barnes was competing. I was like, she's great. She's amazing. She knows Mezcal better than anybody I've ever met in my life. And Jesse Weinstein's up there. And just all these, you know, Chelsea DeMarc, like all these people that I know, they're great bartenders. I was like, of course it was all of them because like I wasn't. I didn't enter, so, like, I wouldn't have gotten picked. So, like, of course it was them, and I had no idea. But it was, uh, you know, it's one of my favorite parties of the year. Like, it's just a great kind of drinking holiday for bartenders. But it's so many people get excited about it. And it, it is kind of verging onto the flair aspect. It's 
and not in the way that they're doing flair, but like it's speed and right. it's it's speed first, consistency second, and like you can win being fast, but if your drinks are shit, then right, it still you don't it still win. plays into the evaluation exactly. So like you still have to make good drinks, you still have to be on point, you still have to know all these recipes, but you still have to be fast. And like I think the speed aspect is something that gets overlooked in a lot of other competitions it's just not part of it it's like showmanship and charisma and genius and like all those things but <laughs> you could put any any woman that gets into the uh their regional round of speed rack or actually anyone that enters and does qualifying behind any bar and they're going to do just fine like right they there's no way that you can enter and get past it and not be a phenomenal bartender sure so you know put a slightly slower bar in front of them where they don't have to make drinks and less than a minute and they've got it yeah i think that's i think speed rack is is one of those things that the listeners should definitely check out if you're not familiar with it uh not only is it a really well respected competition in the cocktail space it's it's also doing great things uh Mm. for women behind the bar and uh we're two white guys sitting here talking about this and (laughs) that's exactly why this competition is important that's how you that's how you know that it's good i mean the brands come out and support both the women and the charity. It's big breast cancer awareness and fundraiser. It's not just awareness. It's about getting money into that research. I buy tickets every time I go, but mostly like I'm here to help. I'm here to contribute to that. I love that. But I gotta, I'm not gonna be on it. The the prizes are crazy. Like the brands come out for these these events. Like and that's even better to see because like I could buy raffle tickets at every speed rack and like. What's my forty dollars a time going to affect? Really, like I, I, I like to think that the the herd mentality will do that. But like, when Absolute comes out and writes you a ten thousand dollar check, or whatever, like they're they're doing some work. You know, they're right. they're really putting their money where their mouth is, or you know, whatever brand it is, um, they're they're the ones that can make the huge impact. And all of us collectively as participants and party goers and and everything can make an impact. But it's good to show them that their contributions and that kind of big money market is appreciated and we will you know support them for doing that yeah we're gonna put out yeah yeah. I, i one thing that i think is a theme for me during this discussion is just the interconnectedness between various aspects of the industry and how large that scale actually Mm -hmm. is when you when you think about like the bar as a community and like a city as a community of bars Mm -hmm. like you're talking about the dc craft bar guild yeah like so many people every evening are actually interacting with this and so when we're talking about these big brands the temptation on my part uh, as somebody who works very intimately with so many craft distillers in Mm -hmm. this region and so many craft bartenders is to look down or put a pejorative tone when I say Diageo or, mm-hmm. you know, Absolute yeah. Bacardi, whatever it yeah. is. Uh, but I, I think one of the things that's just sort of an objective fact is that these systems, these communities really have a big uh, a big footprint on the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I, when you're talking about these bartending competitions, the one thing that clicked for me as you were describing the different types is that the one thing they all have in common is a way for bartenders to kind of be able to step up to the plate and make an impact, whether that's Mm -hmm. on a brand or on the world stage. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, and and it really is is fascinating to me that there's kind of like a, a 
correct approach for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. You like the more tightly constrained ones. Somebody mm-hmm. else might might like the uh, anything goes yeah. types of competitions. Absolutely. But I, I think that's great, and I, I'm I'm personally glad, even though I've I've never tried. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't even know if I have any interest in it. But it, it's cool to watch, and I'm really glad that I can appreciate it from your point of view of like really trying to make an impact. And that impact doesn't necessarily have to be just for you, just for your mm-hmm. pocketbook with a monetary prize. It's it's you're standing in the industry. And if you can increase your standing in the industry, then you can use that influence to continue to do great, great things. Absolutely. Right. And I think, uh, it's important to be said, uh, my, my current mentor, uh, Ben Long, who I've had the pleasure of working with and, and working beside a couple of times, he will put it this way as far as bartending. Um, we're not chefs with liquor. We're not mixologists, even though that Technically, mixology is an aspect of what we do. The study of mixing is literally part of what we do, and we do study it, and that is important. But we're not – that removes kind of the interpersonal reaction and interaction of being a bartender. Bartenders are and have been in history cornerstones of communities. And I would say that all the bricks that I kind of laid out earlier talking about, you know, you kind of made those connections, are all parts of the – the foundation, but it all comes down to the bartender, and that is an important distinction because sometimes our skills and our labor and our and our wisdom and our ability to do what we do is not treated as such. Um, and this is not a pity party, but when you tend bar, you're not just tending the bar; you're tending the, the bar. People. You know, yeah, bar the, in the, quotes. Yeah. The bar extends to you and your life as right. a patron. It yeah. extends to the people that I work with. It extends to the people that own the bar. It extends to the people that live near my bar. It extends to all of the interconnected. You know, it's my distributors. It's my reps. It's my brand ambassadors. It's the competition goers. It's the people that have never had a cocktail before. It's the it's my twenty first birthday, and we're gonna get lit. And I hate you as a patron, but I'm glad that you're here. And it's the regulars, and it's every aspect of mm-hmm. it that you're tending to, and strengthening and increasing the kind of web of connectivity through that system I don't think is ever a bad thing for anybody especially as a guest but especially as a bartender yeah I mean it kind of connects us even closer and I think DC does that better than a lot of other cities Um, I haven't been that involved with other cities as far as the industry is concerned but I hear things from people that have moved or I hear things from people hey I was just in Brooklyn this weekend and they're not as good of friends as, with everybody as we are. And, you know, there's more people, there's more pressure, whatever it is. But I think D.C. is doing something special and different. And that is a great thing to be a part of. And I'm really excited to actually have that opportunity to see the city grow and do something a little bit different, kind of make its own own niche of, of product and um, in our craft distilleries and our craft products to our craft bars to just kind of the overall community relationships with the entire industry at, at large. Right. It's a really powerful thing. And, and one one last connection I want to make is, is sort of a light bulb that I just had. And, you know, we were talking about commodities earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's kind of like these big monoculture things, right? There's Beefeater. Mm-hmm. There is Guinness. There is, you know, these big kind of monolithic uh, companies and institutions. It seems like based on what you're saying is that it's almost like the bartender's job, not 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 just to support craft, because we're very good at supporting craft here Absolutely. in DC. We're very lucky. Yes. Uh, we've had we've had a lot of practice supporting craft because we have a shit ton of amazing distilleries in the city and directly Products, distilleries, breweries, wineries now. Right. Even it's yeah. I mean we're we're sitting at the mecca of 
craft beer brewing in America. Uh, yeah. A lot of people don't know that with Northern Virginia. You're exactly right. You know, your own bitters, the you know, Cotton Reed and One Eight and Republic Restoratives and all the all these distilleries and the DC Brow and Three Stars yeah. and all the the beer that we're we're getting and we are spoiled to death with we that. We are spoiled, and that's great. But that's really how America used to be. Mm-hmm. We're still at less distilleries per capita than we were prior to Prohibition. Oh, and totally. that's crazy to think because there's so many. Everybody's got a fucking whiskey. Everybody's got a, a gin or or whatever it is now. But we're still not even there yet. Right. And, but I guess the point that I was making is that so like DC, like that's almost like we're we're very good at that because we're so spoiled, right? Mm-hmm. So we're good at craft. Sure. But what you were talking about before, uh, about like the commodities and, and it, it seems like the bartender is has the unique power to decommodify a commodity by taking that big thing, right? That thing that mm-hmm. you need to have behind your bar, because if it's not behind the bar, people are gonna come and look at you funny, right? True. True. Um, taking that big thing, but then still making it special. You know, so like by passing it through the filter of yourself, your own creativity, um, your the the uh, kind of project of the bar that you're mm-hmm. in, you have the power to take that thing that may be generic on the shelf or maybe even be generic behind the bar. Mm-hmm. But then when it hits your hands and goes into the cocktail that you're creating, mm-hmm. uh, you actually have that power to, to make it special in a way that it wasn't special until you touched it. I think that's absolutely right. I think, you know, another shout out to Frank Mills again. Uh, he, I think, would be considered a master at that. Um, we have, you know, Jose Cuervo in our cocktail menu that is, that's a little bit jarring to see. And then you drink the cocktail and you're like, well, I've never had Cuervo like that. And you're like, yeah, because we, we took the time to really examine what we were doing with it and, and make it something special and do that. You know, people kind of side eye it or they say, can I get something else in there or whatever? And we're like, just try the cocktail and you're going to, you're going to enjoy that. Yeah. And they always do. Good. Um, and that's that's a that's a skill, and Absolutely. it's something you have to be able to do, uh, because sometimes you find yourself in a bar that doesn't have the luxury of bringing in every every beautiful craft product. You know, maybe you you work in a bar that's a little bit less uh, situated, or you're kind of hungry for that, but you don't have that. But you can still make something out of nothing, essentially. Right. So I think that's a great place to wrap up our discussion of bartending competitions, kind of like this this really complex system that you've laid out for us here yeah. today. We, we, we love having bartenders <laughs> on the show, and, and um, every time we sit down with a different craft bartender, we, we seem to learn something a little bit different about mm-hmm. that world. So that this has been really great, but how about we dig into some lightning round questions? Absolutely. Sounds good. All right. Favorite cocktail? My favorite cocktail uh, is definitely the Water Lily, which is a equal parts cocktail that uh, if you have read Sasha Petrowski's uh, cocktail book uh, Recipe Sasha um, he he didn't come up that I believe that was a Sam Ross cocktail but that was for his wife to enjoy while she was waiting for him at uh, the Breslin before he got off work um, and it's a great equal parts lime juice uh, creme de violet gin mm. and uh, Cointreau very floral, hmm. a little bit on the sweeter side, a yeah. little aggressive if you use the right Yvette. Uh, it has kind of like a bitter edge to it. Um, but it's purple and it's slammable. And I mean, I have much less constraint than uh, than she did. So I would have killed four of those by the time I was waiting for somebody to get off work and be just completely hammered. But yeah, and that's that a, was, you said that was a gin base. So yeah. gin, lime, Cointreau, and creme de violette. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Interesting. That is a... It's a great card. Probably like a milky purple, right? Yeah, with, with the, the lime, lime juice. Yeah, it's definitely got that like murky purple. But if you switch out the Violette for St. Germain, you have a sunflower, which is uh, a crowd pleaser <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Wow. Oof. Like put, oh God, put that, put that in a pitcher and top it up with champagne. <laughs> yeah. That's like a, yeah. that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a recipe for a sideways brunch, sideways yeah. brunch. Yep. Oh, okay. So <laughs> yeah, the water lily, water lily and the sunflower. Those are really cool cocktails. I don't think I've encountered those yet. All right. If you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be and why? If I was a cocktail ingredient, I feel like I would be Chinar. Ah, I love it. Chinar yeah. standard or Chinar standard. Okay. Because I'm very shootable. I'm, okay. I'm very pleasant in small doses. But <laughs> uh, you know, would you drink a pint glass of me? No. Okay. Fair. Fair. Yeah. Uh, Chinar. Uh, the distinction I was asking is Chinar recently yeah, Chinar. released a 75 proof, yeah. which is uh, 32 and a half. That's aggressive stuff. That's that's a lot. I love Chinar, and I would love to one day uh, be the Chinar rep for the world. I would love to be the Chinar guy because nobody's upset at the Chinar guy when he walks no, in. No, like, he's bringing you Chinar. So great. Yeah. Awesome. You got a bottle of beautiful artichoke. Also, not 32 and a half. 37 and a half. Don't. Look at me. I've got two unrelated degrees in the humanities, you math people out there, you mathologists. Uh, okay, uh, cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, paint us a picture. Um, I would absolutely share a entire case of beers with Karl Marx, and I have so many questions that need to <laughs> just, be answered. Just and hanging out, talking with the proletariat? Absolutely. It would It would have to happen. Um, you know, it just... I, I would need that. There'd be so many questions, and the beers would just keep the conversation going, really. What I gotta ask, what case of beer, if you had to pick one right now? <sighs> I mean... Would this be a case I'd probably of, have to make my own. Yeah, like to, I was gonna say, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. You'd have to seize the means of production. Yeah, no, I'd find to, I'd find an employee-owned uh, brewery somewhere and okay. uh, and use that. Fantastic, a Russian a Russian stout. Yeah, yeah. So something big and dark and oh. alcoholic. Oh yeah, you gotta like there. There's no way that that conversation can end with with either of you remembering like the last quarter of it, <laughs> or screaming. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not at each other, just in general. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's. A cool answer. We haven't had uh, haven't had Karl Marx yet. So, getting into advice, uh, you mentioned Sasha Petrasky's book. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any other books besides that one that have been particularly influential to you as you've developed as a bartender? Yeah, influential books are. You know, I have a ton of books, a ton, a ton, a ton of books, cookbooks, uh, chef books, uh, reference books for beverage things, you know, all, all the books. I, I buy books, I probably buy 30 books a year uh, that I try to get to all of them every year. Um, Liquid Intelligence is <laughs> I kind of my figured. personal favorite. I thought you were going to say that. I it's have a feeling. very, very, very interesting book. I had no intention of reading it uh, when it first came out. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't really have anyone tell me about it i found it in a literally at a barnes and noble and i was like okay i'm buying this right now like this is coming home with me i think that's not the best book to start with i think that's more of a 201 202 level book it's a Um, it's not a no not an entry level or it's it's a kind of like hey i want to do this targeted thing Yes, and I use it very much as a as a reference book now, where I, I say, hey, I'm doing some 
uh, freezer clarified juice. What did what did they say about that? You know what what times and and whatever I'm doing. Bricks or, and, yeah. yeah, you know, doing all that kind of stuff and trying to figure. You just kind of dial it in. They've done a lot of the legwork in a lot of these books, which is great. Um, I'm currently working through the Aviary cocktail book. Ooh, how is that? It's good. Uh, the Alinea cookbook was very, very important in my formative years. Mm-hmm. And I think that showed in a lot of the cooking that I did and, and just the way that I, I look at food and ingredients. Um, less on the molecular side, but more in the philosophical side with Grant Ackett's, who is one of the best chefs in my book. That is a challenging book, even for me as someone who's a professional. It it challenges me to think about things. It challenges me with ingredients. It challenges me with kind of preconceived notions that are essentially debunked in some of the pages. And you're like, but that's how I do it. Like, why would I do it a different way? So that's a a challenging book. But uh, I think Sasha Petrosky's book is great. I think that's more of a great cocktail list collection. Is that on cocktails or is that... A, that, uh, that regarding, was, regarding cocktails. Regarding cocktails. Yeah. Yep. Great book. You know, Ben Long has a, has a couple drinks in there which are great. But I think initially the, the book Imbibe and the book um, The Joy of Mixology really kind of changed kind of my outlook on, on beverage and, and really set the standard for like my base knowledge and like my base understanding of like classic cocktails which i think everyone needs to discipline themselves in before you can do anything really interesting i know Derek brown just came out with a book yeah and i have not had a chance to read it i think it came out today it's uh spirit spirit yeah spirits water, water bitter, sugar, sugar bitters. bitters yeah yeah that i'm very looking very much looking which is to which is like very it's the, the Samin nosrat uh what is it salt fat acid heat yeah it's kind of like in yeah. that same camp Derek is very like he is very much that person that will break it down for you he's very clear and concise with his language and i have no doubt that that book will be very approachable to anyone but there will be that meaning behind the words once you really actually read it it might sound simple but he's explaining you very complex things that you'll understand at a different level right once he explains to you in the book i I imagine i haven't read it yet but i'm looking forward to it same here and uh p.s derek are you out there? I submitted something via your contact form on your website. You should come on the podcast. Um, anyway, so great books. And then the other piece of advice, and you can answer this any way you want, but mm. I'm, I'm very interested in, like, I don't know. I feel like maybe I can enter a cocktail competition. Like, what, yeah. do you have any advice for people either looking, like, so maybe we've got, I, definitely we have some bartenders listening, right? Jeff Barry, Wine Kitchen, Leesburg. So maybe for those people, maybe how to get into cocktail competitions, but, but also maybe in general, like one thing that was interesting to me is, is when you were talking about don't sleep on kings. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for somebody who wants to develop a unique cocktail? Because I know we have a ton of really talented home bartenders listening to this who yeah. have no interest in competing, sure. but really want to, like as the weather warms up, they're going to be hosting. They probably want to develop a custom cocktail on theme for their friends. So um, do you have any advice for either of those two groups of people? I would say definitely for the bartenders that want to compete. I mean, find a competition that you think fits what you do well and if you can put something in there that is worthy of of both your time and and your skill set there should be no reason why you won't get picked i mean not every time it's it's it depends on how big the competition is it's like applying to schools or applying for jobs yeah there's a lot of people that also want to do it but if you can kind of find you know start small just also just start 
entering competitions. I think the action of just entering does a lot for you as a as a bartender and as a person, even if you don't go to the next round. And like, even if I didn't get into the semifinals for a mixtape, that cocktail development was important for me. I made something, I focused on it, and I, it was good. I was happy with it. My friends were happy with it. The people around me were happy with it. There was criticism. There was, you know, development. But we ended up with something that we liked enough to put on the menu, and that's an important step of, of however you're going to approach anything. So uh, just find competitions that you you can be a part of and or just, just enter. Just enter. Meeting the deadline and creating something creatively is is a skill set on, on its own. And right. you will develop it enough to a point where someone's going to be like, yo, this is good. I want to see this made. Come to D.C., come to Philly, come to wherever – and we're gonna have you make it for us. Like right. we want to, we want to see that. And and it's not like you have to like pay a bunch of money to enter no, most of these, always, right? They're always free. Yeah. So what do you have their, to lose? Yeah. Exactly. What about for somebody who wants to like create their own cocktail? Like what? Like obviously this is a very complex thing. And as you mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. like one thing that you should probably expect is to not have it go right the first time. Right. There's iteration, no, but. No. Like, what's the thing, like, what is either a hurdle, like, a basic hurdle you need to clear or a basic barrier to entry that starts you off on the right path for developing your own cocktail? Yeah, I mean, you need to start with what kind of, like, what is the end goal of the drink? Mm -hmm. You need to have that in mind. Like, what are you experiencing? Is it like a martini? Is it like a Manhattan? Or is it like a daiquiri? Or is it like a Tom Collins? Or, like... Where on the spectrum of like, you know, there's really only two questions I ask people and they're like, just make me something. I'm like, you have to answer two questions. Yep. Do you want something stirred and serious, something more booze forward? Or do you want something shaken with citrus, something a little more refreshing? Mm-hmm. That right there cuts you down 50% of all drinks ever made in the history of man. And it's so, an easy question. It's a coin flip. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, do you want something like an old fashioned or do you want something like a whiskey sour? Yeah. Almost the same thing, but very different. Yep. You know? You know, the experience is different. I can drink more of one of those, you know, and some people are the other way. They're like, I can drink way more old fashions and I get a whiskey sour. I don't like citrus and it hurts my teeth. Or right. I don't like just sipping on straight booze. It's too aggressive. It's too much. I like something like a sour or like a daiquiri. Yep. So you kind of figure that out. And then you kind of start figuring out the flavors. And there's mm-hmm. a great book called The Flavor Bible that I think mm-hmm. anybody that wants to be creative with flavor, you know, there's some weird combinations in that book. But when you think about it, you're like... Cashews and lavender, that does actually kind of work. It, it, it sounds weird. It sounds weird. It's not something I would have said for the the survey of the book, but you know what? Somebody did, and they were right. You know, or or uh, like black pepper and mint are mm. very good together. So it's like a pepper mint, you know, kind of combination. Right. Yeah. There's um, there's a reason for that. That's a, you know, anytime I make ice cream, I go to Flavor Bible. I'm just like, all right, I've got a vanilla base right here. What are we going to make it? And I just mm-hmm. like look for something I have and then something I have to go get. And I'm like, all right, boom, weird flavor combinations. Same thing with cocktails. You're like, do I want something herbaceous? Do I want to use a herbal liqueur? Do I, am I thinking like something like chartreuse? Or am I just going to pick some basil out of the plant and put it in there? Or am I going to do it in an infusion? Or right. am I doing, do I need some bitters here? I think if you even have like a, an okay cocktail, a little bit of bitters goes a long way. It really blends the flavors together. It's like the salt and pepper of, of cocktail Absolutely. creation. You know, a little lavender, a little aromatic, a little ango, a little peychaud, whatever it is, just find some good bitters you like. And even something that's a little less aggressive of, you know, kind of specifically flavored. Like, that's why I enjoy the aromatic bitters. I'm pulling out different things with yeah. the embitterment aromatic than, you know, 
Angostura, very allspice. There's mm. very little deviation of flavor, especially when you have other stronger flavors. That's what I'm tasting is allspice. Yep, that's the backbone that remains. Yeah. The aromatic bitters that you guys have is, you know, I might get the nutmeg. I might get the, the nuttiness. I might get the... The kind of ethereal, lighter Eucalypt- spices. eucalyptus type deal. Yeah, so it, it kind of just depends on what I'm mixing it with. I kind of bring out different things. Yep, totally. Um, but it blends the flavors together. So just get creative. Have standard stuff in your bar. You know, have simple syrup, have citrus, have some decent bitters, have some, have a diversity of products behind, you know, your house. Like, find things you like. You need to like them. If you don't like them, don't buy them. Like, that's mm-hmm. important. But if you have enough things behind your bar... You can mess around with enough stuff to just switch out a, a, an ingredient once or twice and be like, all right, instead of this Manhattan with rye whiskey, I'm going to do it with gin. Well, great. You made a Martinez, and that might blow your world and completely change the way you drink gin. Right. Or maybe you're like, well, what if instead of sweet vermouth, I did something else, like ginger. the ginger, yeah. like, right? <laughs> I'm all about the ginger right now. You know, just just, just be just be loose, be creative, let the things come to you, learn your flavors, like kind of... Learn how to isolate flavors too. Like when you're tasting, like what are you tasting? What are you actually tasting? You know, mm-hmm. is there juniper in that gin? You know, like there's always going to be juniper in it, but it, can I taste the juniper or can I not taste the juniper? Like figure out how to kind of isolate your your palate, and then just combine flavors that you know are safe: lemon and gin, or lime and gin, or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and then kind of be like, hey, what does a Buddha hand juice taste like? I'm at Whole Foods and they got them right now, and I'm like. I don't know, but we're going to take it home and see and you know, get creative and buy weird stuff at the store and stick your face in it. Stick your face in everything. Yeah. yeah. Just, just smell everything, lick everything. Absolutely. That's cool. how we, that's how we learned how to, how to smell wine. They're like, go outside and smell those rocks, hot rocks, a little wet. Cause the sprinkler was on. I was like, smell like wet rocks. He's like, all right, come back and smell this Riesling. I'm like, Okay, that smells like wet rocks. All right, there you go. Get it now. Now go lick everything and smell everything on the campus and come back to me next week and we're going to do a real tasting. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Well, um, Zach, can you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you digitally, how they can follow your progress on the mixtape, check you out on social, and then um, let's also give a plug for Roy Boys. Absolutely, yeah. My Instagram is ZAC90210. Um, my Facebook, um, is dangerous territory if you don't like communist propaganda. Um, but I'm Zach Hoffman on, on Facebook. Roy boys is at Roy boys, DC on Instagram. Definitely follow us there. You can also follow us on Spotify, Roy boys, DC. We have all of our, um, mixes for, uh, dinner and lunch and brunch on there, which are dope soundtracks. They're all really, really good. All curated for your listening pleasure. If you enjoy '90s hip hop and R&B and and rap and all that stuff, even all the all the way up to modern day stuff. Cool. All right. Well, Zach. Again, best of luck on the competition. We're pulling for you hard here in DC, and you know, from the Modern Bar Cart family for using our product. Uh, best of luck in the competition, and thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts 
and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, beautiful distilled liquids from Gin Lane and Copper and Kings, the cocktail Don't Sleep on Kings, courtesy of Zach Hoffman and Roy Boys, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.